Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Bilge Pumps. And it's another of those episodes which probably the world will be worried about because once again, actually due to Jamie working on the special project that we've got going on, the Taranto documentary that's coming out and is able to be found on my my YouTube channel, but I'm, I'm going to try and persuade Drac to host one of them so that, you know, we are both hosting the episodes for it. Because he's working on that, Jamie has left me and Drac unattended. Now, we also have to admit that the recording isn't taking place at its normal time because we had there were some snafus with the guests and um, it's sorted out. They are lovely people. They will be on at some point in the future, but there were some snafus. So that means me and Drac are left unattended to discuss air defense at sea. And we're coming <laughs> at this from a specific angle because we've been noticing quite a lot of people have been enjoying Battlestar Galactica and the work we've done on that as bilge pumps and well we were sort of thinking traditionally when the governments were talking about the future they went to academia but now all these governments seem to be going to sci-fi so what's happened to academia so i've been on a ferreting mission around jstor we've ha had the 10 most recent articles on jstor that's the joint uh, the journal storage system online uh, on air defense at sea and track what do you think of them <sighs> do i have to give an honest opinion <laughs> we're not going to name them and we're not going to give links to them because we don't want to be cruel to the authors um I, I, and i'm sure they put in some earnest <clears throat> work but they were uh, there was one particular one which was citing the Falklands War, mm. and whilst I didn't particularly disagree with anything it said, it also wasn't really offering me anything other than here it is. It's not basically pushing forward. It's supposed to be about the future of air defence at sea, looking at the history, and it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, the, the the thing that slightly depressed me, given in bear in mind this obviously these are actually proper academic articles, mm -hmm. is that and considering how long I know because I've got three mm -hmm. going through the journal revision process and have had one of them went into the journal reviewing process about three years ago. I know how long how much effort goes into getting mm -hmm. these journals through. Yeah. But with that said, um, <laughs> we, not to blow our own trumpet quite too much, but on bilge pumps so far, <laughs> I think we have mentioned s at least half a dozen different systems that we think would be useful for the future of naval warfare of varying types, including air defense systems, mm -hmm. and anything from four to eight weeks after that episode has gone live 
some navy or other has published an article that basically says we are buying this new system or that new system or we're going to develop this new system and we're looking there going yeah that's kind of the thing we were talking about doing are they spying on us well not spying we just hope they're listening yeah um and do you think they should be paying though yeah at least in iron brew royalties accepted um <laughs> but the but when we look when i looked over the, the various articles there wasn't really an awful lot that i could point to and say yes this system is coming outside of the obvious ones like c scepter and c viper which i mean c viper is already in service but outside of the stuff that everyone has already known is coming for quite a while there wasn't a tremendous amount of this should be the future, this new system or this new way of thinking or this new technology. Um, there, there wasn't any kind of radical thinking, if you... And, I mean, not, not even radical, just a little bit outside of the box beyond we will take the previous system and we will iterate it and make it slightly better and shinier and then Raytheon or M MBDNA or whatever they're called these days will charge us about six times as much because they put a new sticker on it. It was incredibly conservative. I was reading through them. And also, you know, we also sort of, I sent around a sort of article which has come out of some work, mm. which has come out looking at the number of H6 bombers the Chinese have and all these sort of things. And everything was incredibly conservative in those. And I can understand why. Because... If you're an academic, sometimes the urge to be conservative is a good thing. The urge, unless it's conservative with a small c. Mm -hmm. When you're making claims, when you're pushing things forward, it can be very problematic to push forward too much or aggressively. But there is also part of me sitting there going and, and looking at going, well, when we were talking about using Battlestar, Galactica and using that. We also were discussing some of the past and the not too distant past and historical things and going through it. We were blending more than one example in our discussions. Again, not to blow our own trumpets, but this is just how we think. And it's not to say that everyone needs to think the same, but this is just how we think. We're blending more than one example and we were talking it through using those different examples and thinking about it. And the thing is, I could have those those articles, and they weren't. They were quite recent. Some of the several, most of them. They were the most recent ones that were published and available on JSTOR. They had nothing. They weren't going anywhere. They literally started off by stating a problem, and I don't think a single one's conclusion went beyond. We need to improve X system. I think one was even talking about perhaps C Dart could be improved to be better than C Viper. And I was going, no, that was the one that didn't make it in. That was number 11. And that's why I stopped at 10, most recent. But it was just, no. And air defense at C matters. Yeah, if anything, if nothing else, uh, well, the the most recent time anyone had to, had to exercise that was the Falklands, and that kind of proved the point. I mean, everyone started panicking a, a, a little bit after that when they realised that actually you didn't just need effectively flying telephone poles to knock out gigantic Russian bombers. 
but I mean, yeah, it's it does it does concern me somewhat because if you look at I mean taking taking the Royal Navy as an example, but actually in some ways actually the the US Navy is well, a lot of ways the US Navy is in pretty much the same boat. But if you look at the capabilities of the missiles and the, well, the air defense, which is pretty much missiles outside of the um, outside of the point, the point defense systems, you have, let's say, in the, the early 70s, you have sea dart. So it's Mach 3, Mach, well, faster than Mach 3. I don't think they ever said exactly how fast it can go. Um, and you look at Sea Viper now, okay, uh, the long range Aster 30 variant of Sea Viper can go a bit faster than Mach 4.5, theoretically. But outside of a very slightly different body plan, speed wise and payload wise, there's not an awful lot of difference between the two. Most of the advances have come in terms of its seek ahead. But it's not, it's fundamentally doing exactly the same job. Whereas if you look at what the state of anti shipping missiles was in the early 1970s, uh, they were okay, they had some sea skimming, but not tremendously complex sea skimming. And a lot of them were still relatively high flying. You had a few supersonic variants. Well, Navy actually had some. Yeah, that's true. Anti ship missiles. Um, you had a few supersonic variants, yeah. but they they, were, they do of course still have some. It's just they basically mm. get fitted in turn to ships. Yeah, and they weren't exactly stealthy. No. So, and now you look at the status of anti-shipping missiles these days. Some of them have gotten a lot bigger. Some of them have gotten a lot faster. Some of them have gotten a lot lot faster. Some have gotten both faster and bigger. And the worst of them have got faster, bigger, and stealthier. And the sea skimming profile, the seeker heads, and what they do once they've identified the ship has advanced dramatically. So I'd say if you took if you took a a standard missile or a sea dart in the early seventies and you compare it to Sea Viper or SM three or SM six or SM whatever they they happen to be using now. Well, I know they use both, but you know what I mean. Um, yes. And you look at the technological progress between them, and then you look at the technological progress between your typical early 1970s anti-shipping missile and some of the breaking it, leading edge stuff that people are coming up with today. There's been a huge increase in the weapons that are being thrown at ships, not so much in the weapons that are being used to defend ships. Now, obviously, we've got now layered systems with things like C-RAM, C-Scepter, um, ESSM, and obviously between the 70s and now, we've also seen the introduction of things like Phalanx and Goalkeeper. But all of those exist because the long-range anti-air missile, surface-to-air missile, doesn't work as effectively as everyone thought it was going to. Because if it did, you wouldn't need all those point defense systems. Um, I mean, if... if if CDOT worked as well as advertised, you, you wouldn't have had the losses that were incurred in the Falklands. And with the with the, the new generation of 
anti-shipping missiles, whether they be hypersonic weapons, whether they be ballistic weapons, whether they be we're just going to build so many smaller missiles and throw them at you that you physically don't have the point defense or long range defense systems to actually take them all down. And then we'll come up, come and deal with your damaged ships later when you now can't fire back. It is a major problem. And it needs there, there needs to be either a similar technological jump in defensive missile technology and or there needs to be new generations of thinking for other forms of defense, which to a certain extent we're seeing with now with the um, was it the Italians uh, recently who were saying they were going to bring out a 40 millimeter gun with a fragmentation round as a point defense system. They've also got a 76 millimeter. I think they're planning yeah. on doing the same thing. They basically uh, use their 76 millimeters for their air defense, their close in weapon system. And you sit there and go, I'm not sure a 76 millimeter really counts the closing weapon system, but I can mm. see where you're going. Admittedly, I keep arguing for the 40 millimeter phalanx mm. uh, because I honestly do not see the point in having a 20 millimeter pop pop anymore. And for after after years of everybody, at least in popular media, not I I know not so much in actual proper military circles, but even in some of those. Um, after years of everybody deriding the Russian uh, point defense systems as big and complex and wasteful with things like Kashtan and stuff, those sort of combined gun missile solutions, what do we see being tested now? Oh, look, every various Western powers up to and including the Royal Navy are now looking at, I believe it's a 30 millimeter platform with an, eight, an octuple uh, missile rack strapped to it. Yep. Although, so, again, I would prefer that to be a 40 millimeter platform mm. with a 30. Because, again, I, I, it's an obsession with 13, 20 millimeter guns. Yes, you can carry a lot of rounds, but we've got a 40 millimeter ready to go with all sorts of programming, programmable warheads, with all sorts of guidable systems. Scaling it down to a 30 millimeter or a 20 millimeter is a long way down. It is a lot of area you lose, it's a lot of space inside the weapon you lose. Yes, it takes up more space. Yes, it takes up a bit more weight. It's also <laughs> keeping to... you alive. <laughs> yes, this is the point. And also, when you're talking about ships which now weigh... Uh, this is something. When we're talking about ships which weigh 2,000, 3,000 tons, you can sort of see the sort of the things. Once you're talking about a ship which is... Ships which are going to weigh 7,000, 10,000 tons fully loaded... I'm sorry, but if the way if the the, the air point defense system weighs an extra four tons versus the the slightly smaller thing does, that's not going to do much damage to your performance profile. And even the even the cost the cost element, even that argues in favor of the larger weapon because you've got fewer ships. Unfortunately, if you're if you've got a fleet like, say, the 1970s, 1980s Royal Navy has, where you've got, as you as you say, lots of low thousand ton frigates floating that around. That are mostly not that much use in a war, as mm. was found out in the Falklands. Yeah. But, you know. But if you're going to buy, if you're going to want to give them all point defense systems, then yes, there's a certain element for the argument for the smaller, lighter 20 millimeter phalanx on cost grounds, because you're having to buy dozens and dozens of the things. These days, 
the Royal Navy doesn't even break 20 if you exclude the carriers because we've got 13 Type 23s. Yeah. Six twelve forty five, so we've got nineteen yes. surface combatants. So if if you don't count, so the I'm thought it was a, fi- a, a, a smart idea to sell free Type twenty threes and <clears throat> not build the last batch of free mm. Type forty fives. But uh, frankly, nine and sixteen would have been a far better scenario than we are currently yeah. in. And e- even if you add in Queen Elizabeth, Prince of Wales, Albion, Bulwark, assuming the two ever operate together. Um, the Bay class, yeah, and the RFAs. Even then, you're probably looking at mid thirties. So, if yeah. you've only got thirty to forty ships, of which half of them are probably going to be the ones you're going to be putting forward in your frontline combat role, and everything else is going to be behind them as a screen. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to cheap out on your point defense. Because the co- I mean, the, the cost of a 40mm point defence or even a 40mm Western Cashdan variant with some C-Scepters or something strapped to the top of it, or even C-Ram, what's the, what's the additional cost of that versus Phalanx compared to the additional cost of we need a new Type 45? Well, this is the point whenever people keep talking about Type 31 and keep going, oh, it's a, it, it's a second-rate escort. It's not as good at anti-submarine warfare as a Type 26. I go, it's the point defense escort. It's basically, its job is going to be global presence around the world being cheap around the world. But the moment there's a war, you're going to park one of those next to your aircraft carrier with its 57 millimeter, its 240 millimeters, and anything gets through your missile and your fighter screens... That thing is going to be between your carrier and that threat, mm. blasting away. That is its purpose. It is there to stand between the carrier and the threat and blast mm. with its cannons. And and and, it, and and with the and obviously as well, we've also got now the era where your destroyers tend to also be your surface-based land attack platforms because people keep keep sticking cruise missiles in them. Um, especially if you're the U.S. Navy. Um, well, the U.S. Navy, your destroyers are everything. They're your mm. frigates, your cruisers, basically everything. It's a yeah. one size one size fits all solution. Yeah, but it again, if you come under attack, just by having point defense systems, you are acknowledging that yes, your long range missile defense probably isn't going to nail everything that's coming in in a serious attack. At which point. You, given the speed of modern anti-shipping missiles that are in any way serious, you're probably going to have a bunch of missiles still aboard, and you're not going to be lobbing cruise missiles at incoming anti-shipping missiles. So you're talking about a ship, even assuming it's got nothing bigger like a carrier to defend, that's going to have tens of millions of dollars or pounds worth of cruise missiles aboard. It's going to have tens of millions of dollars or pounds worth of additional long-range surface-to-air missiles aboard. It's got your crew aboard. It's got your radar aboard, the ship itself. It costs billions itself, possibly, to build. At which point, you're going to need the very best point defense system you can possibly get to keep it afloat. Because if your ship gets hit, and let's face it, if you get hit by a Zircon or a Granite, it's probably not going to survive. Um all of those other missiles that you might have been wanting to throw at enemy targets ashore, completely useless at the bottom of the sea. 
or worse still, if the missile hits in the wrong place and their fuel goes up, it just can, contributes to the loss of the ship. Um, so th th there needs to be there needs to be a better and bigger generation of point defense systems, and and part of it also comes into the fact that regardless of the additional technology that you can fit in a 40 mil or a 57 mil round and that is a, a a strong argument in and of itself we also have the the issue of in this case the missiles that are coming in but it directly parallels the problems that were experienced in world war ii the 20 millimeter orlikon was perfect at shooting down aircraft after they'd released their weapons so yes you could absolutely savage uh, the val and cape forces of the japanese navy didn't help all that much about the torpedoes and bombs that had just dropped on you whereas the 40 mil could reach out far enough to pluck them out of the sky before they could do that and once that once aircraft and other missile technology started to come in and that wasn't no longer viable they went to the rapid fire three inch mm -hmm. because they needed the range to knock down incoming hostiles at a point where they couldn't do damage to you and with the best will in the world if you've got something that's doing mac 2 plus coming in at you and it has any substantial mass to it you don't even need to be an engineer you just need to have sort of a level or even gcse level maths to work out if something's coming in at mac 2.5 or worse and you put a 20 millimeter round through it at the maximum extreme engagement range of phalanx that's not going to help you awfully much because assuming it was heading vaguely in your direction all that means is that instead of being hit by an intact missile you're going to be hit by a in by an incoming wave of debris fire and explosion that's traveling at say mach 2.2 because yeah. inertia is a thing <laughs> Whereas if you've got a bigger round, it can reach out further and there's a much, much better chance that that expanding fireball of exploded missile either A, has dissipated or B, has fallen into the sea before it hits you. And also, we know though, ships don't, modern ships don't react very well to being plussed with jet fuel. Plus, if you've got a large enough round mm. and it's, let's say, an explosive shrapnel round itself, so it creates a nice wall of flak. We mm -hmm. are getting that back in here yep. between you and the thing. A, it creates something the missile has to go through, but also how, if there's enough explosions going off, then the explosion when they hit might well actually deal in nice way, di help dissipate that ex mm -hmm. that explosive force. And this is the other point you start to get when you're talking about closing weapon systems. And why I get into a lot of fun when I start talking about a 40 millimeter style phalanx, i.e. A, a rotary sort of yeah. firing system. He'll sit there and go, oh, but you only need a single barrel. or You you don't. This is the first lesson you have in World War II. The single barrels look great in peacetime. They are great economy. And you can talk about it and go, right, and if I want a second barrel, I want a second mount because then I can engage two targets and want some. That's lovely. It's, it's, it's lovely on paper and experience. And I've had this conversation with many, many naval officers who are very good, very learned on the subject and will tell me, quote, all the information, all the data to me. 
I can guarantee if anyone gets into a firefight, they will start uh, pray, wishing they had a, a double mount or a multi-mount. Because there is a reason, by the end of World War II, the average mount of, uh, of 40 millimeters of, this is the thing, it had gone from a quadruple machine gun to a sextuple or octuple 40 millimeter mount by the end of World War II as being your standard AA, had gone from single 20 millimeter to a quadruple 40 millimeter. There is a reason for that. It wasn't just they didn't have missiles or they didn't trust their fighter cap. No, no, no. It was because you want to not just hit your opponent, you need to knock them out the sky. And the trouble is with missiles, unlike planes, with planes, I can break up an attack using enough defensive fire, which can spread them out, and mm. that will help me resist. Missiles don't feel fear. They're too stupid to. Which is good for you if you're attacking, bad for you if you're the one being attacked. Because that means you really do need to either shoot them down or distract them. Again, we go back to um, this I came up with, Battlestar Galactica, but I think... Uh, discussions, but I think Drac has also added uh, added quite a lot to this idea. The idea of having a flat ground, which also has little strips of foil in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could make even some go hot with some magnesium in there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just make it nice and warm and attractive. Well, I mean, you could imagine if um, if your missile's gone, okay, well, I can clearly see the radar profile of my target ahead of me, and it's a it's growing nicely as I close in. And then all of a sudden you're doing the electronic version of um, of flashing a strobe light in its face repeatedly. Because if if every shell has an element of chaff and flare to it, so maybe the casing, yeah, you could have the, uh, the inner casing is just, has, as you say, a few strips of aluminium foil and a few strips of magnesium that get blasted out along with the fragments. Because let's face it, whether you hit a small bit of steel, a small chunk of aluminium, or a small burning lump of magnesium, if you're going at Mach 4, 4.5 in the other direction, it's probably not going to make the blindest bit of difference the amount of damage it does. Um, it's all kinetic energy at that mm. point. And then you're confusing, hopefully, the systems that are coming in um, and distracting them. And that means that your system doesn't have to be 100% effective because if you fire off these kinds of rounds if you distract a third of the missiles let's say just a completely arbitrary figure but it could be any any number greater than one then that's a missile that's not hitting you that's a missile you don't have to actually shoot down and that's a missile that is now in ineffective waste of time for your enemy and if you can get a multi-barrel system going then you can well, not only can you fire more rounds, but you can also even look into, again, similar to how they did it in World War II, where you would have standard fragmentation rounds, but every so often you'd sling a tracer round in there or some other form of round as appropriate to the target. So you can have a similar system where you go, OK, well, we're going to be firing, let's say, three rounds of fragmentation proximity detonating flak and the fourth round will be a chaff flare round just dedicated to that and then it's back to three rounds of uh self-detonating flak and so on and so forth so you can you can and then you can time it so you can you can test these things you can say right well if we fire every other round as a kind of chaff flare distraction round 
how, how does that affect lethality versus what kind of screen are we putting up and you can dial it back and forth as necessary until you've got roughly the right thing uh, loaded in and if your enemy then comes in let's say for sake of argument one in five rounds are your self-defense distraction rounds if your enemy then improves their senses so that they can overcome that screen you're just like right now one in four rounds of that and you've just set your enemy's sensor systems back to back to nothing and and up until the point where you're firing every other round you've still got your flak wall and your enemy's sensor systems can't see what's going on all, all of which works very well in uh, in the defensive ship's favor and also, you can work these things. If you have enough fire going up, you can combine from the task group. So everyone in the task group can start putting it up and can get involved and uh, all orientating their fire in that direction. So you get a wall of flak or a wall of this sort of distraction. And if you have enough going on, let's be honest, if there is enough of a radar signature, enough of a signal coming from one position, missiles, whilst we talk about them sort of being... At the point at which they're coming in fast enough, let's say Mac 4, Mac 5, they have fractions of seconds to try and isolate and work out their targets. Mm. And as we just pointed out earlier, they are not the smartest things in the bush because they don't feel fear. So yeah. they're going to go straight in and, and get and distracted. The other advantage of it is that if you've got a multiple multiple barrel option, um, whether that be twin or quad mount, you need fewer of them to provide proper coverage. Because if you've got um, a phalanx, you're not going to defend a large target with one phalanx. If you've got a large destroyer or a carrier, you're going to need three, four, five spaced out around the ship to Queen elizabeth class have three and <laughs> honestly my own theory is that if i was defending if i'd been designing up the fence i'd have probably gone for three phalanx and three 40 millimeters or something like that if i had to use the existing phalanx but if you've got and this is the thing it it's okay they're mounted relatively low on relatively speaking low it is a carrier after all on kind of sponsons below the flight deck but a carrier is never going to be a stealthy no. ship you have despite a despite the person who claimed they could create a stealth carrier for the u.s navy we won't get into the exact problems that that idea base it could do but basically it was supposed to be based on the swath boat well i think you know that's yeah yeah so, no, you, you have a large flat surface which is called a flight deck that has an awful lot of bits and pieces in it but from sprayers to hooks and loops to bolt your aircraft down etc it's never going to be stealthy so stop pretending it's going to be and, and we won't go into the swath design and exactly the whole idea of where are you going to stick the hangar the engines mm. all the material all the resources you need to operate and maintain and support your aircraft yes we realize your idea works perfectly on paper in your own mind but in the reality is more complicated. But if you've got a twin or quad barrel installation, you could probably get away with two. And you could even then, I mean, it's not ideal to use up flight deck space, even if you're putting them immediately fore and aft of the islands. But 
you could even put them on a little sponsor on the island or mm-hmm. islands, depending on whether it's a QE or a Ford. Um, or you could put them fore and aft uh, yeah. if you have if you have to put them on sponsons, at which point, because you're, you've got fewer individual mounts, you can afford to have them in these slightly more complicated areas, but they then have much greater arcs of fire. Now, fair enough, a carrier isn't necessarily going to be turning broadside all the time, but if it was to be attacked broadside, then you've actually got two. Both of them can bring fire to bear, which means that in the case of a twin mount, you've now got four barrels, and a quad mount, you've got eight barrels pointing in in down your threat vector. And if you're being attacked from four or aft, you've still got two or four, which is a sub- substantial amount of defense for a relatively minimal footprint. And because the one of the other things is when you look at self-propelled air defense vehicles on land, how many of those do you see with a single barrel? <clears throat> Mainly Western ones, which look mm. woefully... Uh, again, the trouble is with the Western technologies, it, technologies, it often seems to focus on we have superior technology. And as Drac has pointed out in the past, and I've known for many years, there was quite a shock when we started looking at Soviet equipment after the wall fell. There was quite a shock at how uh, it wasn't as stupid as we thought. And one of the things I point out is, on the whole, the West missiles are smaller. And again, rely on precision more than just blasting. And yet, we're the ones who are relying on precision rather than just blasting for our close-in weapon systems. Yeah, and when you look through them today, it's like, look at the Tunguska, that's twin barrel if mm. you and ignoring anything else obviously it's got uh, eight, an eight pack of missiles aboard as well the chinese have the the type 95 which has four barrels and a bunch of missiles uh, the marksman turret that the british looked at for a while that was a twin barrel mount yep um and yeah i mean yeah okay people will probably point to the m163 which is effectively a land a landborn phalanx system that's been trimmed down and stuck in an apc but we've already established that that's not exactly the a standard that is going to work against more modern threats but that was mainly designed with uavs in mind mm, wasn't it but even when you look at the admittedly abortive sergeant york and the slightly less abortive m42 that they use they're all twin barrel mounts it and these are on land the the german gepard as well actually twin Mm. barrel so and these are all systems which have got to deal with being effectively dedicated to that task and to that task only and they have to provide their own mobility they have to get around and they're still able to find space for two barrels and we've I mean, we've established back even back through history. Like you look at land-based artillery, especially self-propelled artillery. Heavy artillery on land is considered 150, 255 millimeter. Standard artillery is usually 100, 105 millimeter, and there's a lot of lighter artillery. Whereas at the same time that as that, when you're looking at ships uh, in World War One, World War Two six inch what's considered heavy artillery on land six inches you're like cruiser weapons 
very very occasionally on land you might see an eight inch self-propelled artillery but that's very rare and anything bigger than that is considered an unusual siege gun that only really gets brought to places where you're going to be for a long period of time but at sea they're rocking around with eight inch guns on heavy cruisers and stuff that's bigger than that shows up in multiple numbers on every capital ship known to mankind so ships can carry much bigger much heavier weapons much more efficiently so at that point you've got to ask why are the land guys getting away with twin or quadruple barrel point defense systems and ships are being stuck with single barrel often in calibers that are smaller than the ones that the land-based counterparts are it's like with the as we were talking about with the the you were talking about with the air carrier i myself actually would still want to keep four and have them sort of placed you know in each corner of the ship so you would have redundancy is my mm. mind and also have them out of the way of the flight deck because I, I just would like to see steve george's face if we told him we were going to put a 40 millimeter anywhere near his flight deck <laughs> the poor man had enough like, staring experiences with a sea dart um i don't think we want to put a 40 millimeter near, near his successes no. when they're trying to do their work <laughs> that's my main reasoning but you, you, you a multi-barreled 40 millimeter with some form of missile etc added on would seem to me to be the basic in terms of close weapon weapon system if you don't want to have a missile because you're worried about the frag and the effect of the missile on the flight deck and what it can do then that's fine but go for a quadruple barrel 40 millimeter and we've had them before you know think of hms vanguard when we were talking about her role if she'd been in the falklands we basically said well you could either use her big guns for tor uh, for basically tormenting the poor uh, the and at that point we would agree poor argentinian mm. conscripts or you could have her sitting in falkland uh, sitting in san carlos bay with her air defenses on and make it massacring the argentinian air force anytime they decided to poke their heads up above the hills mm. and to be perfectly honest if 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 she still had a sextuple 40 millimeter with the crews that can use them, even if they're running below hill level, it probably wouldn't have helped considering how much of a deterrent value fearless was with two single manually aimed 40 millimeters. <laughs> uh, if you've got a ship that's got 70 plus 40 mils in sextuple mounts with the, each with their own dedicated fire control radar, that's a little bit, fair bit of a deterrent, and that's before we get into any of the heavier. I just think that that's just not a nice experience to be in if you're... Uh, if you're and also, again, what I find funny is we're talking about this, and we're talking about this on air defence, but what happens if you're talking about the other the point of point defence, when we're talking about swarm boat attacks, when we're talking about terrorist uh, potential sort of terrorist mm -hmm. attacks and all these things again the 40 millimeter round offers you a very far more options or these mm -hmm. weapons that offer you far more options and before yeah. anyone starts accusing us of getting funded by someone making 40 millimeters we wish we were <laughs> if anyone wants to fund us we already think this so we don't mind taking the money we're, we're, we're quite open to it we 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 both quite like a lifetime supply of iron brew. Um, holidays in wh where would you fancy going this year, Drac? Mm, probably New Zealand. That seems nice, yeah. and I've not been there before. Yeah, New Zealand will be quite nice and um, first class, of course. <laughs> and uh, we'd also quite like new cars. I think um, <laughs> I'll have a brand new Subaru because I really quite like my Subaru. Um, and what do you fancy, Drac? Um, I don't know. To be honest, 
I actually quite like my car as it is. <laughs> um, okay. Maybe maybe they can maybe they can fund a dormer dormer loft conversion or something. Yeah, we'll think of things. But yeah. you know, well, if, the, if, if both of us are going to get in on this, I mean, come on, we're, we're talking about forty millimeter. But most naval enthusiasts, the minute you say forty millimeter, they automatically append both as to it, even if it's not. Um, mm. If both of us are listening, I'd quite like an L60 that you've salvaged off of some World War II ship or other. I'll stick it in the prompt garden. That'll be a good deterrent. Yeah, that would be. Oh, that'd be fun. But I mean, it, it's not just to the bofers that it, it's actually where we get into the discussion of but I said we're not getting funded but the discussion of what is the 40 millimeter you go with because there is a current debate going through the uk about whether or not the 40 millimeter bofers which has been shown for type 31 was the right one or whether they should have gone for the cased ammunition which is being used a type which is being used by the army for their new vehicles and the option that keeps coming back is the army have chosen the 40 millimeter, which is great, but the actual manufacturer of it says this design is not for air defense at the moment. It's not fast enough to be used in the close in weapon, close in the uh, mm. close in weapon system role. Their plan is to develop it into it, but at the moment it hasn't got there. So if the Royal Navy bought into it, that means they'd have to join the French in paying for the development costs, whereas the 40mm, the whole point of Type 31, is it's supposed to be bought off the shelf and the 40mm Bofors is available. Plus, of course, the 40mm Bofors comes with the programmable shells. But what do you think? Because I can talk about them for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the decision that we're looking at here is going to be, if you want to go with 40 mil you need your multiple barrels. I mean, mm. ideally, you want multiple barrels in whatever, but with a 40 uh, mil... 57mm, 76mm, yeah. all could do with multi-barrels. But I, I, I'd be very happy with yeah. a multi-barreled four and a half, a five-inch gun for my main gun. <laughs> but if, or if six-inch. Yeah, but if you're going to go with 40 mil, you, I think you have to have multiple barrels because 40 millimeter phalanx as a direct concept upgrade... Yes, it's an increase in lethality, but I don't think it's enough because this this is one of the other things when it comes to conservative thinking, when it comes to these kind of things. If you do a good enough upgrade, you're going to be doing another upgrade 10 years down the line, and it's actually going to end up costing you more, and in the interim, your ships aren't as well protected. And that 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 applies to so many systems. I mean, e even... Even things as relatively basic as as computers, because when I build a computer, and I do hand build all my computers, when I buy the components, bearing in mind I'm using it for things like gaming and more recently, obviously, video rendering, I could build a machine that is good enough to run whatever the games are in current year. And it would be relatively cheap. The actual tower itself would probably come in at around five to seven hundred pounds. And I know that's a, still a lot of money, but that's relatively cheap for a gaming system. Trust me, it is. I also build my own. This is another reason we get along so well. <laughs> but, but you'd end up having to either upgrade or replace it two or three years down the line. So you've now spent another, let's say, average six hundred. So you've now spent twelve hundred. And another two, three years down the line. So you're only talking five or six years, so probably five years on average from the time you built your first one. Another one. So you've now spent 1,800 quid. 
Whereas my approach to it is actually, I'm not going to buy the all singing, all dancing, top of the range stuff that they charge ridiculous markup for and is twice the price of the next step down. But I'll buy the, that next step down. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years, ago, I can't remember, with a year, a couple of years ago, when they brought out, say, the GTX uh, 2000 series of graphics cards, I wasn't going to splash out for a 2080, but I did get a 2070 rather than a 2050. Yeah. Um, and that with that approach, I've spent a thousand twelve hundred quid roughly every time I built a gaming PC. And those gaming PCs usually last six, seven years. Yep. I can make them stretch to eight or nine if I upgrade them very slightly with some what by then are relatively cheap, almost legacy components. And when you do the math, you very quickly realize that I've actually probably saved myself 50% on overall lifetime costs by just splashing out a little bit earlier. And I think that's the same thing with with this. If Mine you're gonna... is about five years old. I'm mm -hmm. going to be replacing it probably in about a year and a half's time. Mm -hmm. At the moment, it has uh, 16 gigabytes of RAM three no four terabytes hard drive divided into a uh, dual mm -hmm. mirroring drive system so it's actually works out as two terabytes mm -hmm. but it that i built as i said many years ago uh, using the same system as you actually buying mm -hmm. the second from the top other than with the hard drives i have to make yeah. i did splash out on those but that's because they're the, the company i used which might i was buying from which might have a name which is the name for a particular song in a symphony a symphony <laughs> who were very nice had a very good christmas special going on them and i thought for 30 quid more i can get myself the top of the range so i treated myself yeah okay but it it does last and it does save you a lot of money compared to either buying the biggest block you can from dell or by doing going the level down and then having to rebuild it I love the way you think you can stretch them to three years. In my experience, I've had friends who've done it, and it's usually mm -hmm. about two years later. Yeah, it's just if, falling apart. If it's just good enough, it means that the next the next thing that comes out that's supposed to be the next generation or the next step up in games or software is going to break it or make it run really slow. And mm. the development cycle on those things is a heck of a lot shorter than the development cycle on PC components. Um, and sort of bringing it back to the air defense i think the same thing applies it's if you if you go with a 40 millimeter phalanx basically single barrel radar dome stuck on the top yeah that'll be well to be honest at this point it'll probably bring you up to acceptable but come 2030 you're going to need something new yeah whereas if you have twin or quad mounts I'll probably see you along for quite a while because there isn't going to be too much that's going to be blowing its way through that much um that much defensive fire unless they start putting armored caps on missiles um at which point hey there's a yeah, there are uh, armor piercing 40 millimeter rounds in there out there yeah. <laughs> uh, but the it, thing it, is there is actually quite a lot of 40 millimeter rounds out there this is what people hmm. don't seem to realize it's one of those gun designs which gets quite it's actually the sweet spot for a lot of technologies to mix in we're not just randomly picking the 40 millimeter because 
we'd probably be picking picking the 50 millimeter, which is a simple two inch or something like that. No, we're picking the 40 millimeter because actually when you want speed of the mount movement, you want it at elevation, all these things to be quite fast. The 40 millimeter is the upper end for the very fast movement without putting to, requiring too much machinery. The same with the precision of the rounds going in to allow for rapid fire. It's about at a level at which you can still keep up a rapid continuous fire. There are lots of reasons why you start going to the 40 millimeter. Trust me, in World War II, they wouldn't have settled on it if they didn't have, think it was the best option. Because in World War II, they didn't really have the financial restraints in many respects that we have today. Yeah, and when, when you look at... The thing is, when you look at some of the other navies, some of the other navies have cottoned on to this, actually, a lot faster than some of the large navies, because I was... Um, Recently, because of the escalating tensions in the Mediterranean around not not quite the Balkans, but that region with obviously Greece and Turkey squaring off for various mm. reasons, I was actually thinking to myself, hang on a minute. It looks like Italy and France are um, getting stuck in on Greece's side. And I was looking through some of their systems and I realized when you look at things like uh, Trieste, the, the LHD and Cavour, their sort of mini carrier although the, the fact you can use the word mini carrier to describe something that's almost thirty thousand tons when it's fully loaded is quite hilarious in and of it's itself it's another reason why i find it funny when you're talking about the, the queen elizabeth class and they're going we have free mm. phalanx and you're going you are 70 nearly eighty thousand tons yeah in a nicest way that is mm. I, I i don't know what that's like jason moa, moa who the, the guy who plays aquaman mm. the huge guy who's Bodyguards, whatever you see in picture next to him, are literally about as wide as his arm and teeny. There's a mini bosses you have to fight to get to the actual boss. Yes, and the trouble is, you're spending billions procuring a carrier strike and carrier air defensive carriers because you need it to have global reach. And then you're going, you know what? I'm going to, relatively enough, spend pennies on getting this. Yeah, but then when you look at when you look at Cavour, so it's half half the weight of the Queen Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. It has three Orlikon twenty five millimeter. Yeah, so broadly equivalent to the Phalanx. It also has a pair of seventy six millimeter. Yeah, and then you look at Trieste, which is mm, two three thousand tons heavier than Cavour when it's fully loaded. Also, weirdly enough. Well, not so much weirdly enough for a light landing ship, a bit lighter when it's uh, unloaded. That also has three twenty-five millimeters, and it has three seventy-six millimeter. So they've they've already got the um, the heavy AA. They've skipped on there. the forty millimeter generation, and gone straight to we're turning to yeah. the three inch generation. But yeah, pretty much. Um, although again, that they are getting all their stuff off of Otto Malera, and Otto Malera love their seventy-six millimeter, and always have. Um, yes, it, it, it's been a passing joy for Otto Malera and the, the seventy-six millimeter for a long, long time. And you you can see, and when you look at pictures of Trieste, um, and apologies to any Italian listeners because I'm probably horribly butchering that. But you can see what the the sort of the the side sponsors that they. This put is where we need on. Simon Elliott. Because he could probably pronounce this stuff perfectly in this in the Italian. Yeah, you, you can see where they put all the the the, the guns on, sponsor wise. Um, so 
there, there isn't really, in my mind, any excuse. Um, I mean, the, the, to be honest, the Italian Navy is actually one of the very underrated medium-sized navies of uh, the current generation. We They've get got... into this a lot. The Italians seem to be consistently underrated as a navy. Mm. When we're talking about World War II, everyone talks about the German Navy and the Japanese Navy. The Japanese Navy, I agree, but frankly... At the beginning of World War II, when the Italians get involved in 1940, they could probably have kicked the German navies behind quite happily. I, well, I, I, as I've said before in various videos, I still hold that the Littorio class, slightly odd defensive systems aside, is still actually overall a superior design to Bismarck. Yes. Um, which, to be fair, has its own slightly weird defensive systems. But let's face it, Latorio manages to be faster, more heavily armed, and arguably the similarly or, be or actually probably better protected on 3,000 tons less. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, point, point, points to the Italians there. Um, mm -hmm. And after all, the other thing is, if you really, 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 really want to judge who who out of the various navies in World War Two was Royal Na the Royal Navy actually worried about, which which fleet did they assign war spite to for the the crunch years of World War Two, the Mediterranean? Which fleet did they assign Admiral Cunningham to? The Mediterranean. <laughs> where did Somerville go? Who was considered mm. the next one after that? Also, where the was other end Where of was Henderson headed? Probably, possibly mm -hmm. the Mediterranean to replace yeah. Cunningham. Or because uh, Cunningham might have been well going to replace Pound, yeah. Uh, or going to the Far East to watch the Japanese. This is the thing. Where does uh, when you're talking about the Royal Navy's looking at the Mediterranean fleet still? Who do they go? Who do they send to replace Cunningham and take part of the area? Um, oh, I've forgotten. He's from the River Plate. Harwood. Harwood. Every single chance they get, every single admiral who goes. To the Mediterranean is one with a strong fighting pedigree. They might turn out to be not good as, as good at managing the politics as Cunningham was, because frankly, few are as good at managing the politics as Cunningham is was. But um, you know, they were all sent there because the Italians were no joke. No, uh, I, I, I would quite. If if someone said, right, you're going to lock you in, lock you in um, a thousand mile square square ocean box and you have a chance you've your choice is command the Kriegsmarine or the Regia Marina I'd be like okay well where's the pasta boat <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not even a question um and <laughs> they, they 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 bounced back quite well from uh, what happened to them at the end of World War Two. yeah I mean I suspect there's probably a certain degree of national trauma from having to hand uh, Julia Cesare over to the Russians because we know what they did to uh, Royal Sovereign and um, I think that Milwaukee. was probably the cruelest thing you could do to them. Mm. At least you could have been nice and sunk her in some nuclear missile, nuclear water, nuclear <laughs> tests. Yeah. Handing her over to the Russians. We'd seen what they did to the Royal Sovereign. Uh, oh. Anyway. But yes, yeah, so, so the, the Italian Navy, they've cottoned on to this. So, and actually, to, when you look at, I mean, okay, it's not old, but Cavour is still an early 2000s ship. So actually, they, the Italians have been onto this idea of, of heavy and multiple shipborne AA for the better part of two decades, at least. So the question is, is it academia's fault that the big Western navies haven't worked it out, or is it the big Western navies are still stuck in this 
I don't know, in this 1970s idea. Because if you think about it, the goalkeeper was heavier than Phalanx. And Phalanx has survived over goalkeeper because it was easier to maintain. Mm-hmm. But Phalanx is... Phalanx is a weapon from, what, the 1960s when they started developing it? Concept. Concept 60s, deployment uh, late 70s, early 80s. You know, how many weapon systems do you, unless you're talking something which is fundamentally basic, like a, I don't know, 4.5 inch gun, would you really expect it? it, It's kind of the phalanx is like the F4, FV1432. I think that, I I think I got that in the right order. The APC, which just won't leave the British Army in about. 200 years when the British Army is left with one armoured fighting vehicle because all the rest have been salami sliced off. It will be an F4V1 an FV1432. It <laughs> just will be. I'm now going to yeah. look up and check if I'm actually using the right name for that because It also dro- drove me to quickly check the, the De Gaulle and although the De Gaulle hasn't gone for um, heavy AA it's got uh, various point defence missiles instead and it has eight 20 millimeter guns. I, I think I think to be honest, it's with the larger navies, it's a combination of looking inwards and ignoring the smaller navies, albeit that the French and the Italian navies are actually now coming up to well and have been for a while of a fairly considerable size. But also academia generally it has this annoying habit occasionally of just looking at whoever's biggest and going, right, what are they doing? We must do this. But if you are the big Navy, then your academia is basically telling you do more of the same or improve what you've got because you're the biggest Navy. Therefore, clearly, you must have the best, um, mm-hmm. which isn't actually necessarily always the case. It, it can Ooh, Lighting really just went down. Um, it can sometimes be the case, but... I personally wouldn't count on it a lot of the time because, again, looking back at World War II um, and thinking of, of what happened there, we we obviously go on about the, um, the highly advanced systems that the Royal Navy had and the US Navy had, and rightly so. There, there were some yeah. fairly nice advanced systems in the possession of, of both those navies. But... What happened when the Dutch ships showed up? The Royal Navy effectively descended on them like a pack of seagulls and took everything that was nice and shiny and new off of them. So it was like the Hazemeyer or Hazemeyer Mount was Dutch. Yeah. The few few Dutch vessels that were left in the Netherlands, the the Germans pounced on and basically took a... Um, and a, a semi-working version of the schnorkel off of them, and uh, and the, and and then yeah, you look at other other things as well, like the Italian, again the Italian Navy World War Two, actually had an absolutely wonderful uh, triaxially stabilized uh, mounting, uh, similar to the Hazemeyer mount, but for even heavier AA guns. Slight pity it didn't quite work. But they tried, at least. Whereas the the five inch and five point two five inch and uh, later on three inch guns 
didn't quite go the same route as sort of things like the Italian 90 mil. Um, and so the, the, the smaller navies can come up with an awful lot of insight. But if you ignore them because, well, they're physically smaller, they don't have as many battleships, carriers, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, missiles, etc. You risk looked at popping your head up in 20 years and realizing, oh, actually, these guys have considerably better tech than we do. Well, um, I'll just clarify the vehicle I'm talking about is the F43, F4, FV430 Bulldog series. The FV432 was the one I was going. Not sure why I was adding in one. And they entered service, in, production started on them in 1962. So they are roughly analogous with the phalanx, and they are still mm -hmm. in the service. Mm. But here's the point. The ones of them in service now have a decidedly more firepower than the ones which came into service. Theoretically. And a lot more side armor. Mm. But it's this is just... It's like the Danish Sandflex system. The Americans mm. try and copy it for the LCS, and they miss what was the key component of that, which was there was very strict, very tightly controlled rules about the modules, and you had to conform to them, otherwise you didn't get paid. Yes, they had teething troubles, but none in the way that the Americans have had, where they've had all this sort of... And you can say half the trouble the LCS is down to the specification for the absurdly high speed for the size of hull and the hull forms that they want to get and secondly it's the modularity system which was supposed to be make them the swiss army knife uh, just hasn't shown up yeah i mean this is the thing it's about balance and this always seems to be forgotten when it comes to navies by all sorts of people, whether it be the sort of the regular guy on the street, the enthusiast, the academic, or the navies themselves, you have to have a balanced approach. And and don't get me wrong, we're not saying the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy, etc., are technologically behind these small and medium-sized navies, or negligent, or bad, no. or anything like that. They are ahead in certain circumstances. I mean, you're not going to see the Italian Navy or the French Navy field a railgun or a point defence laser anytime soon. Um, that's almost certainly going to be an American ship. Lasers, depending on some of the tech, that might actually be a British ship. But the, the railguns, I think, it's going to be a competition between the Chinese and the Americans. Um with and, BAE doing a lot of the work for the Americans, so yeah. you might well see it eventually on the British ship as well. But if you want to, and if you want to build a carrier, well, the Americans have built more carriers than everybody else put together in the last half century. Of course, they they have the advantage in that that, that regard. But just because a, the large navies or larger navies have technological advances in some aspects, it doesn't mean they have them in all aspects and so what a sensible navy should be doing is rather than just focusing on what do we think we need and what can what have we got and what can we iterate on they should be looking across the world and going this navy has this that's good that navy has that that's good let's adopt 
all sorts of things. I mean, obviously, we don't have particularly good relations with the Russians at the moment. But let's face it, if you want an anti-shipping missile in a completely neutral environment, you're going to buy Russian. Yeah. Um, if you want to, say, look at, say, heavy anti-aircraft, heavy and uh, gun-based anti-aircraft and anti-missile defense systems, the Italians seem to be the people who are the, who are the furthest ahead on that. Although the Bofors 40mm is still, as always, very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, and then when, you, I mean, you, you can look at all, all over the place. I mean, until the introduction of the F-35, the Rafale was probably by far and away the single best carrier-based fighter, um, fighter and strike platform. Albeit, you know, there weren't that many of them, and you can't deploy that many of them off of Charles de Gaulle. But if you compare a Rafale side by side with a Super Hornet, I'm pretty sure the Rafale's going to come out on top. Um, and things like um, Storm Shadow, we obviously Storm Shadow's in the possession of the British Armed Forces, but the French have Scalp N, which is the sea-launched version, and so that's a fairly fairly substantial oh. anti-shipping missile that is stealthy. Or Norwegian, the naval strike missile, which yep. is also mm -hmm. fairly decent. Yeah, available look, if you can't buy Russian. There you go. You've got two options. Yeah. And look, look back in uh, in the Cold War and how many people bought Penguin. Yes, in its various iterations. So the Norwegians yeah. do produce good anti-ship missiles. Mm. Shockingly enough, they seem to have a distinct motivation to <laughs> sink in enemy shipping. They have bad bad experiences with those things turning up off their shores. Yes, they produce very capable anti-ship missiles. Yeah, mm. but we, we we could go on and on with various what various other small navies have come up with that's really nice and neat. Um, uh, you know, I mean, even it's like SSKs, I mm. I am still not quite sure why the Australians are buying French. I'm sure they have a good reason, but if I'd been buying an SSK, I think I would have probably gone. Well, the main ones you're wanting are either are Japanese or the various designs which are broadly speaking from what I call the German Baltic school. Yeah. And then and yeah, and if you want to look at to be honest, if you want to look at air defense warfare ships, the ship that's carrying the most sensor systems and missiles is a South Korean vessel. Um, yeah. So And what close in weapon systems is she fitted with? I think she's fitted with Phalanx, isn't she again? Probably because they, the South Koreans, for rather obvious reasons, do love to buy um, a lot of American. I mean, the, the, the Sejong the Great basically takes the Ali Burke and, and feeds it steroids until it's at the point of bursting. Um, yeah, it, it, but again, this is the point. If you're spending that much money on missiles, no, on they've fire, actually got, they actually use goalkeeper and ram. So they've gone for a missile, slightly heavier cannon combo. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, to be honest, I do like the RAM launchers. They are, they are, they are, they are a pretty nice way of getting a decent point defense missile system on a space that doesn't actually demand too much more from your ship than the uh, Phalanx does. But honestly, I, I, you see, the thing is, it's always with me when I'm talking about missiles near a carrier. I always worry about FOD. Mm. And the more sensitive you have your aircraft be, the more of a thing, and the more you will have to worry about fog. Yeah. So this is the, this is why I prefer to go 
the heavy gun route mm-hmm. where you can control where the FOD yeah. goes. But when you've got your escorts, you might want to consider something like a RAM battery to yes. supplement your guns. But or yeah, you I mean, probably fit a RAM launch a RAM battery in mm-hmm. a forty millimeter mount. Let's be honest: if they have a yeah. radar one side of the guns, then they have the guns in the middle and a RAM the other. Hey, hey, quadruple forty millimeter and RAM pain. <laughs> yes, I mean, so it's. I mean, this thing is just just going over some of some of those systems. You can think about the latest and greatest stuff that is in common service with the larger navies. Arleigh Burke Flight 3s, I guess, now coming up, and uh, Type 45 in the Royal Navy. And you can Type look 26 at coming along, coming along. But you can you can look at look at their capabilities, and then just think about some of the capabilities that we've been mentioning now from various navies, and think, well, most of them, with the exception of the Russians, are either allied or at least on friendly terms. They're probably not going to object all that much if we want to buy some systems off of them. At which point, why not do that? Because a ship that puts together the best of various allied navies in terms of its technology, okay, yeah, it might, because of the various all-up weights, might come out 500,000 tons heavier than you thought it was going to be. And you'll ha- you'll have to modify the design as a result. Thousand tons, didn't you? But no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be a few aircraft carriers heavier <laughs> yes. than you were planning your yeah. frigate to be. But I mean, if you if you if that would definitely be an all singing, all dancing <laughs> something. Yes. And, and and of course, you, as I say, you would have to modify the design when you're taking into account. Okay, we're going to incorporate all these other weapon systems. Modify the design whilst you're still drawing it up don't just go oh yes well we're going to use exactly the same hull and try and cram everything else well, that doesn't work us 1930 destroyer design pre-fletcher class shows exactly why that's a bad idea um but think about how much more effective those ships would be welcome to the bilge pumps where a bunch of naval geeks spout off I hope you'll join us in part two where we'll delve further into this topic. Take care and hope you're enjoying. It was a very fun discussion for me and Drac. Have a nice day and hope you're listening to me again soon.